This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In February of 303, Diocletian published his Edict Against the Christians. Prior to this, Diocletian had issued imperial condemnations against the Manichaeans and seemingly other Christians in 298-299. These, these persecutions were explicitly aimed at the destruction of Christianity. Diocletian ordered the raising of churches, the burning of Bibles, and the arrest of clerics. Much as in the Valerian persecution of 257, Diocletian seized ecclesiastical land and buildings and the property of clerics. In addition, Diocletian prohibited Christians from celebrating liturgies and from worship. He also removed the rights of Christians to defend themselves in court and withdrew citizenship rights from elite Christians and re-enslaved Christian freedmen. The penalty of being a Christian was beyond social stigmatization. It was to the complete removal of the Christian's rights to a trial, property, and ownership, as well as bodily integrity. For a citizen had the right to demand a trial and a freedom from physical torture. Just as St. Paul famously in Acts did. When citizenship is revoked, the Christian no longer had the right to claim a trial, and the right to not be tortured was removed. While Diocletian recommended this persecution, called the Great Persecution, take place without bloodshed, his co-emperor, Galerius, urged that Christians be burned alive. Many Christians throughout the Eastern Roman Empire, North Africa, and the Balkans, North Italy, were arrested and either executed, tortured, and maimed, or sent to the mines. Why Diocletian and his fellow co-emperors undertook this cruel program appears to be twofold. The first evidence we have is to Diocletian's anger that, the Christian so that Christian soldiers would not offer sacrifices, especially to the divine genius of the emperor. This appeared almost treasonous. Adjoined to this fear is the worry that Christianity had infected the Roman Empire like the hated cult of, cult of Mithras, which the Romans, including Cicero, had attempted to extirpate with some regularity at several points in Rome's history. The dread of Christianity, this Eastern, hence often discussed Persian cult, was that it diluted the Romanness of the army and those who from the army took up positions in the imperial government. We must remember that as it has been throughout time, the military is also a means of socioeconomic advancement. And throughout the empire, veterans of the army were given land upon completion of their military careers. Thus, cities as great as Carthage and Corinth were military colony. And the fear that these Eastern religious cults would entrench themselves in Roman metropoles throughout the empire was immense. The fear of Christianity as an Eastern cult, which undermined Romanness, Roman society, and Roman imperium, highlights the great, greatest justification for Diocletian, the enforcement of Romanitas. Romanitas is the adherence to Roman values, piety, religion, and social structure, which must manifest itself in concrete public action, specifically, the offering of libations to the divine cult of the genius of the emperor. This public action would be certified by officials, much like in the Decian persecution some 50 years earlier. Indeed, we still possess, mostly from Egypt, some of these libelli, or these little official certificates, which bear the profession, the witness proof of votive offering, and official certification of said offering. Diocletian and his co-emperors had decided that the relationship between Christianity and Romanitas was, in a way, zero-sum. 
If Christians were willing to burn their scriptures and make votive offerings, then they could remain Christians in their hearts and minds. Ecclesiastical leaders would either offer libations or be executed. And for other Christians, they would either put off corporate worship and offer sacrifices or be tortured and sent to the mines. The state sought merely to coerce their actions and at the very least to coerce public fidelity. Yet the reports we have of Diocletian's intellectual justification for his great persecution include his consultation of pagan philosophers. As has been the case more frequently than many want to acknowledge, philosophers often function as the brain trust for a course of social action. So it seems that Diocletian enlisted philosophers as greatest porphyry to help promulgate the philosophical rationale for the imperial persecution of Christianity. Porphyry is a philosopher rarely taught today, though this does not tell of his aptitude as a philosopher. Porphyry was known as the greatest philosopher of his day and his writings, particularly his Isagog, which is a sophisticated commentary on the categories of Aristotle, endured as the standard introductory text to the study of philosophy. St. Augustine even calls Porphyry the greatest of all the philosophers, and we will discuss Augustine's response to Porphyry later this week. To say something of Porphyry's philosophy is precarious in part because many of Porphyry's works remain only in fragments. Porphyry composed The Life of Plotinus, one of his teachers, and edited Plotinus's great, works, great work, The Enneads. He also studied under the great rhetorician or grammarian Longinus, and through Longinus's tutelage, worked at detailed commentary on the work of Homer, who has, was called by some learned Greeks of this time, the theologian, that is Homer, the theologian. Perhaps borrowing from Christian exegesis of the scriptures, pagan intellectuals professed Homer to be an oracle of divine truth and held that close study of the Iliad and the Odyssey would disclose theosophia, profound mystical truths, especially in aiding the ascent of the mind to God. It is perhaps this traditionalism of Porphyry that caught the eye of Diocletian. For Porphyry did not simply expound the mysteries of Homer, but wrote profusely against the Christians. Indeed, his most infamous work was a 12-book critique of Christianity entitled Adversus Christianos, or Against the Christians. In these books, Porphyry criticized numerous aspects of Christianity, especially the Christian belief in prophecy and the divinity of Christ. I want to spend a few moments unpacking Porphyry's philosophy in relation to Christianity, both for its fascinating complexity and its importance as an imperial and pagan alternative to Christianity, especially as regards the relationship between religion and the state. Porphyry, we must understand, was not simply a philosophical opponent. He was a strident adversary of Christianity and possibly even part of the brain trust of the brutal Diocletian persecution. The general framework of Porphyry's criticisms of Christianity is as follows. First, unlike opponents of Christianity such as Celsus, whom I mentioned yesterday, Porphyry does not pillory Christ as a magician or a huckster. For example, Porphyry rebukes the many pagan critics of Christianity who had sought to slander Christ. Porphyry argues that when pagans consulted their own oracles, they were compelled to praise Christ. What is significant about this citation is that it reveals how Porphyry treated or even appropriated Christ. Porphyry holds that Christ was a wise man who ascended to become a hero or a lower daimon. Christ, therefore, deserves piety, but not as God, rather as a hero. To make some of this clear, 
In Porphyry's system, there are grades of spiritual beings ascending toward God. Between the human and God, there are many levels of beings, and one may ascend or descend these levels depending on one's life. Second, Porphyry does not hold that Christ is a higher daimon, therefore higher in this ladder, which deserves a broader piety. Rather, Christ is a local hero, like Rocky is in Philadelphia, or I'll say Shaquille O'Neal in Miami. Porphyry even contends that this is in fact what Christ thought of himself in relation to the ascent to true being. Christ was himself a soul or mind being purified toward higher ascent. The problem with Christianity, Porphyry averse, is the disciples. The disciples of Christ then, and not Christ himself, are responsible for the errors of Christianity. These errors consist in the disciples' naive exaltation of Christ as God and in their hubris to spread the name of Christ throughout the world. To state this again, Porphyry's view is that Christ is a local hero, a lower divine figure that deserves local piety, not worldwide adulation and adoration. The disciples for Porphyry err in their profession of Christ as the universal God. In this claim, we see a positive dimension of Porphyry's theology. Local cults devoted to certain lower divine figures merit only local piety. To confuse a lower daimon with the one high god of Platonism is to worship the bodily and not pursue the release of the true intellect in contemplation of the one high god. The expansion of this logic, though in a slightly different form, is witnessed, as we'll see, in the anti-Christian tract by the emperor Julian the Apostate, called Against the Galileans. The title of this work reveals the Emperor Julian's attempt to localize Christ as a Galilean, hence limited to the region of Galilee, and in doing so to critique the Christian movement, which extols Christ as the high God. An additional criticism of Christianity, though this is more implicit in his fragments, is of the Christian resurrection. Christians hold that the human will be resurrected, even if this is taken to be a spiritually or a spiritual resurrected body, This condition cannot be the final state of perfection for Porphyry. True perfection, that is the highest ascent of the intellectual soul, is to the bodiless pure intellect, or as some say, a nearly or logically bodiless state. Hence, a frequent response by Christians to Porphyry's conception of the eschatological or simply ultimate end of noose or intellectual soul is to assert the teaching of the resurrection of the body which we will see is part of what Augustine does and bears more fruit than perhaps at first it may seem. The last dimension of Porphyry's thought, at least for our concerns, is a broader framing of religion. Porphyry both criticizes the common public religious cult of sacrifices, we see this in a citation of his letter to Anibo, and yet he argues also for its usefulness. Of course, as a vegetarian and ascetical philosopher, Porphyry holds that sacrifices might appeal to evil daimones, not the more pure ones. Nevertheless, building upon his own understanding of the tripartite soul, that is, that there are three dimensions of the soul, a corporeal soul, the spiritual soul, and the intellectual soul, there is a place for piety at the corporeal level of the soul. The corporeal soul is purified through dutiful participation in local, often civic cults. Hence, public piety has a positive place for porphyry. The soul enfleshed should not so boldly scorn what is its current condition. Implicit in Porphyry's rebuke of Christianity is that to reject the local public cult 
is to consider hubristically oneself above one's own current condition. This does not mean for Palfrey that the public cult leads to spiritual or intellectual purification. This is in kind either theurgic or mystical journeys or the philosophical and intellectual journey to God. But, and I hope that this is clear, the public cult is an important part of piety for the lower soul. The public cult helps to order the emotions and promote civic and ultimately imperial reverence and piety. The Christian is thereby indicted by Porphyry as a usurper who foolishly rejects due piety and strangely claims to universalize and localize the process of purgation for the intellectual soul, a process which for Porphyry only occurs in the philosophical ascent of the mind. These two verbs, to universalize and to localize, I'm using to depict two other dimensions of Porphyry's criticism of Christianity. Christianity universalizes in that Christ alone and the Christian mass or liturgy alone are claimed to purify the whole soul. To put this into Porphyry's anthropology, every dimension of the soul, the embodied spiritual and intellectual for Porphyry, cults may be, indeed are, local and therefore may vary. This is the very pretense of Porphyry's book, The Philosophy from Oracles. Different cults, Egyptian, Babylonian, Greek, etc., lead by different means to the purgation of the corporeal soul, and some even lead to the purgation of the spiritual soul. But no one cult leads to the purgation of the whole soul, particularly of the intellectual soul. This is reserved for a kind of intellectual philosophy alone. Christianity localizes in that it claims that the highest and complete purgation, at least the participation in this process, occurs in a particular context, the church. For Porphyry, such mediation, which is implied by the localization, is not needed for the purgation of the intellectual soul. The intellect, for Porphyry, simply needs to adhere to the high God. It needs no localized mediation. And for Porphyry, there is no single concrete way to God. And yet, the highest end of the soul is reached only by way of the divine intellect within the human. Other pieties and religions may be useful in reforming, purging, and training the lower portions of the soul, the corporeal and spiritual. Thus, one should follow local customs and civic pieties. One should not reject civic religion as having its admittedly lower, though important place in the purification of the individual. Thus, Palfrey is presenting in our words a kind of pluralism. He safely ensconces the highest illumination in the inner journey of the mind to God. This is the pursuit of contemplative philosophy. With the highest illumination so deeply internalized, Palfrey then claims lower levels of legitimacy to local religion and practices and higher legitimacy to one celebration of the imperial cult. And we can see two consequences of Palfrey's philosophy. The first is that a basic virtue is found in observing local and civic piety. And even more so, the foundation for being just, that one is just at a base level, is found in one's observ observation of the larger imperial cult, for it is this which holds all these particulars together. One must observe local piety, but certainly one must celebrate the imperial rites. The second effect of Porphyry's philosophy is that it is the imperial rites that bind society together. There is, on one side, local religion and personal or spiritual religion, such as things like theurgy, and on the other, the imperial cult, which applies to everyone. 
and St. Palfrey's pluralism, the state offers the broadest religious way, not to the highest end, which is philosophical contemplation, but nonetheless as the baseline for all social cohesion and even the beginnings of individual piety. To this end, Palfrey's philosophy enshrines in the state the highest social end, as it relegates religion to the lowest and tucks away the philosophical journey of the intellectual mind or soul. As Augustine will say in response, the mind is set to be free while the state compels the body. And religion in its plurality is only held together by the great unity provided by the state. Now, however persuasive Porphyry's philosophy might have been, the Diocletian persecution was not ultimately successful. Christianity was not so easily rooted out, especially in the Greek-speaking parts of the Roman Empire. And Christian leadership proved more resilient, even as many suffered brutal fates. Still, the end of the persecution would only come with the victory of the Emperor Constantine. In 312, the triumph of Constantine over Maxentius at the Milvian Bridge on the Tiber outside Rome marked an important and dramatic shift in the status of Christianity in the Roman Empire. The story around Constantine's vision of the cross, the in hoc signo vinces, or the in toto nica, in this sign, conquer, is famous now, and even at that time gave a stiff air of providence to Constantine's victory and future conquest of the whole of the Roman Empire, which he completed in 324. Just a year later, then 312 and 313, Constantine and the Emperor of the, Eastern, Emperor of the Eastern Empire issued the Edict of Toleration, which did not make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, which is something I hear endlessly repeated. Christianity's status as the official and only religion of Rome would not begin until Theodosius' reign in 380, with the enforcement against pagan shrines and practices occurring in the late 390s, early 400s. Rather, the Edict of Toleration made Christianity a tolerated religion among other religions. The Edict of Toleration of 313, published by Constantine in the West and Licinius in the East, reads, quote, We judged it a salutary measure, and one highly consonant, with right reason, that no one should be denied leave to follow the rites of the Christians, or whatever other religion he thinks appropriate, that thus the supreme divinity to whose worship we freely devote ourselves might continue to grant his favor and beneficence. Constantine coupled his toleration of Christianity with granting certain legal responsibilities to bishops, restoring and even granting land and property and building massive basilicas in Rome, Antioch, throughout the Holy Land and elsewhere in the empire. While Constantine did not frequently persecute pagans, though there are a few examples, in the course of his reign, the major cities throughout the empire were transformed. The Christians went from a persecuted, though public group, to the designated recipient of grand buildings and public favors. Both in social presence and political power, Christianity, particularly Christian bishops, had now to wrestle with their authority in the state and increasingly the state's authority and influence on the church. Though the Edict of Toleration in theory put Christianity on an equal footing with other religions, that the sole emperor was an unbaptized hearer of the Christian faith complicated and expedited Christianity's ascent in the Roman Empire. Constantine seems to have had a certain reverence for the structure and normative regulation of the church as witness as at Constantine's convocation of the Council of Nicaea. Eusebius of Caesarea preserves an imperial letter of Constantine's in which Constantine proclaims about Nicaea, quote, 
all that is decided in the holy meeting of the bishops reflects the will of God. However, Constantine saw himself as God's aid on earth. Constantine wrote, quote, God willed my services and judged them fit means to accomplish his own purposes. And so, beginning from the British Sea in the north, from the lands where the sun sets, I have hunted out and destroyed, with the help of a superior power, the terror that reigned on all sides, so that the human race, disciplined by my intervention, would return to the service of the most holy law and blessed faith under the powerful guidance of the Most High. Quote. Constantine also avers that he is willing to go into action at any length to, quote, rebuild for you, God, a holy dwelling place, criminally devastated and profaned by the hateful and the wicked. <clears throat> the Edict of the Toleration had proclaimed that, quote, no one ought to injure another on the basis of religious conviction. To enter freely into the struggle for immortality is one thing. To have it imposed by constraints is another, end quote. However, as Hugo Rahner rightly depicts, the principle of toleration gave way to the politics or policy of unity. It is, in Constantine's words, quote, the state's duty to preserve in the Catholic Church among so fortunate a people the only faith, a sincere charity, and a common worship of Almighty God. It is the state's duty, Constantine judged, to preserve the unity of the Catholic Church, in a sense. So Constantine continues, quote, but no fixed and enduring disposition can be concluded unless all or at least the greater part of the bishops gather together and arrive at a decision, end quote. To this end, to promoting a kind of unity, Constantine calls himself a, quote, colleague of the bishops in the service of God. Constantine, as Eusebius of Caesarea reports, considered himself as if a bishop to his subjects, so that the citizens of the Roman Empire might live a life pleasing to God. Reflecting on Constantine's convocation of the Council of Nicaea, Eusebius says that it was as if Constantine, quote, had been made by God everyone's bishop. Perhaps because he viewed himself as the, quote, external bishop of the church, Constantine did not see himself as bound to the creed of Nicaea. In short order, bishops such as Athanasius were exiled, and Constantine personally threatened to send officials to remove the bishop of Alexandria from his episcopal see. Constantine threatens, specifically to Athanasius, quote, if anyone, something I reckon impossible, seeks this time to resist our order, I will send someone immediately who armed with imperial authority, I assume more than imperial authority, will hunt him down and teach him that it is not appropriate to resist the orders of a sovereign who upholds the truth. Constantine's forceful integralism was expanded by his son, Constantius. Athanasius famously called Constantius the persecutor of bishops, as Const Constantius used regular councils and exiles to accomplish a unity within the church through what some call the Arian confession. That is, the confession that the son is not of the same substance as the father, but like the father, and like is to say, of course, not like. Against the heartfelt and imperially enforced integralism of Constantius, Pope Julius, with an exiled Athanasius present with him in Rome, argues for the integrity of the church and the dulcis libertas, or the sweet liberty of Christianity from the intrigues of the state. Pope Julius declares to Constantius, quote, that all subjects are to enjoy sweet liberty, give to each subject full and complete freedom to live without any constraints, 
end quote. But what follows in the reign of Constantius is a more complete attempt at integrating the church, her confession, and her clerics with the unity of the Roman state. When the bishops warn him, quote, do not confuse the church's jurisdiction with the Roman Empire, since religious authority does not derive from you, but from God, Constantius has responded to these bishops, quote, what I will is the law of the church, end quote. Indeed, Constantius was so loathed by Nicene bishops for his authoritarian rule of the church for imperial ends that one of the great Latin defenders of Nicaea, Hilary of Potier, wrote a treatise contra, or debated, in Constantium, a treatise explicitly against the emperor Constantius. Needlessly to say, a dangerous thing to do. Indeed, Constantius's displeasure with bishops who opposed his creed and his vision of Christianity was such that he exiled the Pope Liberius and pressured him to relent through hardships. While some defended the Nicene Confession of the full divinity of the Son, others praised the theological judgment of Constantius, saying that they, quote, these are bishops speaking, they say, quote, we're enlightened by the letter of your pious majesty, so that we are blessed, to whom has been granted so happy a day the result of that decisive letter of your piety, which eliminates those words used with reference to God and the Son of God, end quote. The words that these bishops refer to is the homoousios of the Nicene Creed. Such was the status of the profession of the creed in the church. To those bishops who opposed him, Constantius wrote, quote, no decision can have any standing at law if I deny it my stamp of approval, end quote. Thus, the Christian creed, the Nicene Creed, was condemned by the emperor, while the emperor, who had rallied bishops to his confession, put forward a creed that explicitly rejected Nicaea. So it remained until Constantius's sudden death in 361. Constantius was marching to meet his nephew Julian in battle, and upon Constantius's death, Julian, known in history as Julian the Apostate, became the sole ruler of Rome. Now, Julian was a curious figure. Raised a Christian, Julian renounced his faith, grew a beard, donned a pallium, and professed himself a proponent of the pagan religion. Julian proclaimed himself a Hellene, an heir of the great Greek tradition. Julian sought then not to confront Christianity outright, but to introduce a kind of chaos into Christianity by restoring and exiling various bishops. Those who had been exiled were returned. Some who were there were exiled. He also sought to promote paganism throughout the Roman Empire. He argued for the efficacy of theurgy, the dancing statues, if you know this. And he promoted true piety and reverence for paganism in education. This includes his banning of all Christians from teaching, which Augustine recounts in the Confessions. Julian insisted that the gods are not mere protectors of the cities. They deserve piety as such. As Julian increased his campaign against Christianity, he wrote a book, as I've mentioned, against the Galileans. Drawing from Porphyry, Julian argued that Christianity errantly claimed it was a universal philosophy and religion. Christ was not God, but rather simply a Galilean. Christ might therefore merit a kind of piety in Galilee, but nowhere else. Christ is merely a local hero, not the high God. With this provincial view in mind, the Emperor Julian asks, is Judea, quote, the only land that God chose to take thought for? But to us, no prophet, no oil of anointing, no teacher, no herald to announce his love for man, 
which should one day, though late, reach even unto us also? If he is the God of all of us alike and the creator of all, why did he neglect us? End quote. Julian, like Porphyry, insists on the provincial status of religion, especially, of course, in this context of Christianity. Yet paganism did not have the vitality Julian presumed. The populace had no interest in the renewal of pagan sacrifices. Julian famously even threatened the destruction of the great city of Antioch because so few came to offer sacrifices. Julian complained that pagans did not view their religion as more than an obligation to the state. The Christians, Julian complained, had charities and nascent hospitals, while pagans did not, nor did the pagans seem to care to establish them. So in contrast to the wielding of Christianity by the state under Constantius, and to a lesser degree under Constantine, Julian sought to reestablish a top-down integration of local religion subordinate to imperial religion. But now Christianity was even more of a rival as it rejected the subordination of the local, of religious worship and practice. Julian's last-ditch effort to erode the claims of Christianity was to rebuild the Jewish temple in Jerusalem in 363. His plan was that by reestablishing the Jewish temple, Jerusalem itself would then be the local shrine of only the Jewish people, and thus the great churches built in the holy city by, Constant by Constantine would be visited by fraudulent, fraudulent interlopers. The Christians could not then could then only claim Galilee as their rightful locale, and Jerusalem would not be an image of the universal and localized profession of Christianity, but rather merely the shrine of the cult of the Jews. Julian was not able to complete his project, dying in his military campaign to conquer Persia. However, the legacy of Julian and the backdrop of Constantius profoundly influenced, or at least for our purposes, highlights Christian responses. One response, which I want to mention, is the joint phenomenon of the prominence of pilgrimage to the Holy Land, which is occurring at the same time, and asceticism. <clears throat> During the time of Constantius and following, pilgrimage to the Holy Land drastically increased. Of these, we have, new, uh, we have the remarkable journey, journals of the Pilgrim of Bordeaux and Egeria. There's a few others, but Egeria's is particularly remarkable. Pilgrimage to the Holy Land emphasized how space and, in a way, time were, in a sense, made holy. Jerusalem stood in contrast to the Roma Aeterna, for it was a place holy to all Christians, in a sense, holy to all humanity, not simply the limited Imperium of Rome. For it was in hoc loco, or in this very place, that God walked, conversed, died, and resurrected amid and as one of humanity. Another prominent image of the societas formed in Christ is witnessed in the early ascetical texts from this period. Asceticism is the lived practice of moral, spiritual, and physical rigor toward growth in Christ, which is captured by the sentencia I referred to to die daily, to live in Christ. In the fourth century, Christians not only pursued ascetical practices toward union with Christ, but also perceived in their very practice the foundation of a new, or as I have been arguing, a more profound societas. Indeed, in the Vita Antonii, the life of Ant the Saint Anthony of the Desert, written by Saint Athanasius, we witness a profound critique of the claims of the state. In the life of Antony, Antony the monk retreats further into the Egyptian desert in pursuit of union with Christ. Athanasius observes how many followed him, such that the desert became a city. 
This phrase from one of the most widely read texts in the early church is a comment on human solidarity, on human community. In the wilderness, beyond Rome in a sense, a city is formed by those seeking to pursue God. Their pursuit is not an abandonment of their humanity and an embrace of individuality, but rather is imaged as a true community, a city. This human society is not dependent on Rome, but points to how Christianity is bound with human solidarity. As some monks ask, this is sort of a famous commonplace, Jerome has it as well, quote, how fares the world? Does Rome still rule? End quote. Taken in the framework of Athanasius' contest against Constantine and Constantius, this quote indicates the relative place of the empire. Right? If someone could so freely say, does Rome still rule? Then Rome doesn't really matter. The Christian faith, or even human nature, forms the basis of society, not Rome. The legacy of the emperors Constantius and Julian certainly reinforced a general suspicion of the Roman emperors and the danger of wedding the church to the state. However, in short order, the respected military general from Spain, Theodosius, known later as Theodosius the Great, you can tell how he's remembered, 379 to 395, would become emperor. Theodosius was a baptized Nicene Christian and almost immediately undertook a fierce defense of Nicaea. On February 27, 380, Theodosius in Thessaloniki issued his Cuntus Populos to the people of Constantinople, and implicitly, though it's unclear, it seems, the rest of the empire. This edict reads, quote, It is our desire that all the various nations which are subject to our clemency and moderation should continue to profess that religion which was delivered to the Romans by the divine apostle Peter, as it has been preserved by faithful tradition, and which is now professed by Pope, De Pope Damasus and by Peter, Bishop of Alexandria, a man of apostolic holiness. According to the apostolic teaching and the doctrine of the gospel, let us believe in the one deity of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, equal in majesty and in a holy trinity. We order the followers of this law to embrace the name of Catholic Christians. But as for the others, since in our judgment they are foolish madmen, we decree that they shall be branded with the ignominious name of heretics and shall not presume to give to their conventicles the name of churches. They will suffer in the first place the chastisement of the divine condemnation and in the second the punishment of our authority, which in accordance with the will of heaven we shall decide to inflict. End quote. In short order, Theodosius called the Council of Constantinople in 381 and enshrined the Nicene Confession throughout the Eastern Roman Empire, eventually, of course, the West. Theodosius also began a program of edicts condemning paganism. Though, again, the enforcement of these would not be until the decade after Theodosius' death in 395. Even more, Theodosius was victorious against the pro-pagan usurper Eugenius in 394. <coughs> The famous and decisive Battle of Frigidus in what is now Slovenia, and some Italians dispute it, Northern Italy, was immediately heralded as the last gasp of paganism and the triumph of Christianity. Indeed, though Eugenius's army was larger, reports of divine intervention, such as the wind that blew the spears of Eugenius's army back on themselves, enshrined this battle as the divinely sanctioned victory of the Christian emperor. Theodosius' triumph initiates a complex assessment by Christian bishops. Is this now the Christian times or the Christiana tempora? Is Theodosius not the model of a Christian ruler or prince? 
If so, how does the church find itself before this Christian emperor and now Christian Roman Imperium? And to say Nicene Roman Imperium. I want to turn to this later as the topic of my final talk. Nevertheless, I hope that I have laid out enough of not only the political and religious conflict in the fourth century, but also the very logic and issues at stake. For the philosophy of Porphyry and its implications, the inchoate Caesaro papism of Constantius and Constantine to a lesser degree, and the response found in St. Athanasius, as well as the triumph of Theodosius, profoundly influence and shed light on St. Augustine's remarkable consideration of the state and church, to which we will turn later. Thank you. Yes. I was wondering if there's any um, known causal connection between Julian and Porphyry's writings and uh, like Erasmus's philosophy of Christ or Spinoza. So the last part I can't answer at all. Um, Causal. No, I would say the only way uh, this may be come may may come to light soon. I haven't read this; it's fairly recent. But um, Cyril of Alexandria wrote a response to Julian, great length. Uh, the editions of it appeared fairly recently, uh, being translated into English, I think now. But the French editions came out not long ago. The critical edition. So there may be more in the details there. Everything about it looks the same. Yeah. But we have the fragments that are elsewhere. So uh, the genetic link. I, I don't know of it as certain. Uh, I don't see how it's not possible. Porphyry's so well-known and everywhere. Uh, I, I would wager a large sum of money that that is the case. But it may be even shown to be genetically so in Cyril. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes? Do you, think the one, do you think that one of the reasons that Porphyry is able to form a reinterpretation of Christ is because he's living in a context in which um, there are multiple Christs and radically different Christianities? Such that Plotinus is still concerned with uh, Gnostic interpretations of Christ. So it's not so there's like a Gnostic Christ, and then there's a Gospel Christ that's not so radical for the Porphyrian uh, heroic or Christ. So I, I don't, I do, I, I, I understand. I think the reading that you have in Gnostics, for example, whatever that means, we can leave that out slightly, the ones uh, that Plotinus seems to know would certainly give him familiarity of how you could interpret Christ differently than simply the Christ who walks uh, in Galilee and you know dies in Jerusalem. So I think absolutely that there is uh, these other interpretations of Christ aids him. Uh, but I think some of this is just simply that you can't have the high God be human. I mean, that, that's a simple impossibility. And then his integration of all these other cults while Christianity is claiming more than any of the other ones, in a sense, is uh, something that he has to deal with. There are these debates about whether or not Porphyry's wife was a Christian, uh, or his what, second wife or first wife. This is complicated. I, I think not, but Augustine seems to reference this. And whether or not he was a Christian earlier and all of this. He's also from the same region, just a martyr. Kelsa seems to be. There's something about that part of... Um, Oh man, what's the city there? Pardon? Alexandria. No, no, of, C- of Caesarea, northern Caesarea, uh, of Phoenicia, basically. Uh, that part north of Caesarea that many of these people seem to come from. That's very interesting Gaza. there. Pardon? Gaza. Gaza, yeah, yeah. But uh, there's a, a particular city 
that many of them seem to come out of just south of Antioch, between Eusebius and Antioch, and I'm blanking on its name for some reason. But so I, yes, I do think that is, it, it certainly aids him. But I also think Palfrey's acumen and the development of his own system is such that he could have come to it without that, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Pardon, tire, tire. Yeah. I'm sorry, I was blanking on the city. Yes. So for Porphyry, is Socrates a local hero like Christ? Like yeah. What's the sort of relation? Yeah. Uh, like is Socrates' daimon higher than Christ's daimon? Like is he? Well, I don't know about it. But, so th this is what, yeah, first, yeah, is, is, is Socrates a daimon? Yes. And there's a, a whole thing Apuleius has a text on the daimon, Socrates. I mean, this is a, a middle Platonist thing. Uh, so, yes. And you would say that perhaps then Christ is lower in the sense that Christ would seem to claim that he is more than just a sort of representative of the universal as Socrates does. But in fact, Porphyry will say, no, that's not Christ, that's the disciples. So on every level, yes, they're local daimons. Yeah. Yes. So... I'm interested in this idea that you bring up about Antony. Um, you have this interesting phrase that he's sort of this witness over against the Roman city um, or something to that effect. Yes. In, in his asceticism. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts. It, and then you have this phrase about Ignatius that he erects this, this city in the desert. So it seems he's doing this really odd thing. He's at one and the same time, um, yeah, standing as a contradiction to the Roman city and at the same time, sort of proposing an alternative kind of city. Yes. He's not, not anti-civilization, so to speak. So I'm curious, um, what is it about this asceticism that, or what maybe, what is it about the Roman city that Antony's asceticism is such a counter-witness? And then, kind of on the flip side, what kind of city are we to, what, when Antony is forming the city in the desert, what does it mean to talk about this city if the foundation is like his monastic asceticism? Yeah, uh, so... In different ways, away from Antony in that text itself, Jerome takes us up. I mean, there's a lot of literature on this. I would say, in part, it's Philip Rousseau, my colleague, may rest in peace. Part of his um, work on asceticism was precisely this. this. Sometimes they call it sort of like the ascetical turn and the rise of the ascetical bishop and all of this. So there's a dimension of this that takes its place in cities. Jerome is an example of this. Uh, his life of St. Paul, uh, the first hermit, he will then have an abandoned Roman mine, so they're going further and further out. And he writes in the end uh, of this to the people of Rome, the Christians in Rome, to shed their wealth and all of these things, uh, or at least to consider, right, to live more moderately. And so this urban movement is in part of the transformation of cities as much as simply finding, founding a new one. Can you found a new one inside the city, in a sense? Uh, so there is that dimension, which is quite uh, prominent. But there is also a move to go to the east, to the Holy Land, which we see many people do. Rufinus does this, Jerome does this, uh, Sulpicia Severus may have done this. Uh, several of the other people accounted, uh, that are recounted in this go to, not only Algeria, some go and um, Melania, they establish monasteries there. And people come from all over to live in these monasteries. So there is an attempt to found, if you will, new kind of holy cities as shrines in places that are largely depopulated, but you know, the Mount of Olives and different sites, and then of course Alexandria well, outside in the desert. Um, and so how are they different? Uh, 
one of the things that you could see in the Desert Fathers, for example, is the life of perpetual prayer, and then a profound attachment, which people usually obscure in the life of Antony, to hospitality. Uh, in the life of Antony, towards the end, they say he becomes as if a doctor to all of Egypt. Uh, so they all come and they're getting advice or he's helping them and doing all this. And this is sort of like the beleaguered Antony after he's already been transfigured into sort of a, he hasn't aged after all those 20 years in the cave. Um, so this profound sense of hospitality, the giving of alms, the praying of the psalm, I mean, like the Coptic custom throughout the whole day, you're praying the Psalter, uh, this kind of thing. Uh, there's no such shock, although I will give with all the caveats that so much that is before this, we don't have extant. But the great commentaries on the Psalms begin, right? Athanasius writes his little letter, but then Hilary Potier, Ambrose, Augustine, etc., all in this flourishing, uh, which it does not mean, again, they weren't before. Several others there are, but it is extensive reflection, which I think kind of goes into this, let's say, revitalized city, this new city, a different city. It's Zen. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Yes. I was flipping through Eusebius's demonstration of the gospel right before coming here, and it <laughs> seems like he does cite a lot from Porphyry and yes. people. So I'm wondering how the early Christians in the same period are responding to and kind of co-opting some of his points to bolster the Christian claims. Yeah. So uh, Eusebius does more fairly. Uh, Lactantius uh, seems to cite him obliquely uh, against him. But then after that, with Eusebius, some criticisms of this, the whole book of the demonstration is against Porphyry, right? Against the argument of prophecy, which then, of course, means that there's a divine activity in history. Like, it's a strange thing to say, but the sort of proof from prophecy means a lot more than it seems at first. It seems something kind of simple, but in fact, it does mean sort of God's activity unfolding in time and history. So uh, the more hostile citations will start coming with Augustine, uh, and others, uh, but Augustine cites him favorably as well. So yes, they're they're all dealing with him. I mean, he's the largest figure uh, that Christians engage with intellectually. But if I may kind of follow up, with oh yeah, I'm sorry. Like the hostile or non-Christian observer would say, like, Christian veneration of saints sound kind of sounds similar to what Porphyry calls like these local yeah, yeah, yeah. diamonds or heroes. Yeah. Uh, are Christian thinking like maybe outside of thinking these kind of similar terms, or are they not? So I don't think there's any objection about this. Well, there's one text, you know, you have this sort of famous uh, Vigilantius, the, the uh, Contra Vigilantium with Jerome, where you may have a criticism, but I don't think anyone's talking about the veneration of saints and their sort of presence, relics and all of that, as being uh, somehow too pagan. I think that's, in some sense, there's a common shared understanding of that. I actually think, no, the opposite would be the case is that there's not so much of the relics, the veneration of relics and all of this in Bovary. So, no, I don't think that they, that is a point of great contest. Um, if anything, it becomes a critique of relics later. Uh, but even that is kind of rare for a long time. I mean, I don't know going forward, but Vigilantius is one of the few. Jerome writes his scathing uh, treatise against him. But I will say one point of great difference is the idea of mediation. So there is a sense of what kind of mediation. And that does get clarified. Even the distinctions you see of Dulia and Latreia, if you know what I'm talking about, uh, that distinction is one I think brought in part from a, a, a deeper conversation, if you will, with Porphyry.
Yes. What's the appropriate thing about the martyrs that we talked about yesterday? Like, is, is he sort of concerned about some of the things we we discussed about, like, you know, yes. it's like the, the social breakdown with professional felicity and, yeah. Yes, I think so. But also, I'll note that his philosophy, which is, I think I find it in a sense appealing in some ways because it is able to uh, integrate so many things. So let's say we did have a, a, a shrine to Perpetua. Bovary could say, well, she didn't become an altar Christus, but she was a local hero. She deserves veneration, but she should have a cult. Uh, this is what I think makes uh, Pofri so remarkable in a way versus most other systems where they, they really can't integrate many things. Uh, but yes, he, I think absolutely he does have concerns with this. And they know this, I mean, just to go a, a century earlier, this is why they're pounding up and burning and crushing the bones of martyrs and spreading them in the rivers. Uh, that's what they do with the martyrs of Lyon. Uh, they, they absolutely know this. Yes? In the uh, search for God's activity in human history, is the language of the Roman Imperium or questions about it? Do you think that changes or impacts uh, um, kind of understandings of the providential character of history that maybe Augustine develops more later? Well, I would say yes. But I would add, the first part is, could you say that differently? Um, so at this time, so you mentioned uh, uh, discussions of Roman Imperium, and you had also said a little bit. Yeah, yeah. okay. I, now I process yeah. it. So yes, I kind of don't want to get into it too much, but I, I might as well. Um, <laughs> absolutely, but it does mean that Roma Aeterna isn't really a part of it. Right, I mean, like God's providential order then opens up sort of time, in a way, to move beyond simply this famous phrase of the Imperium sine fine, right? The, the rule without end of Rome. Um, instead, Rome is relativized. And so then the sort of providential dimension of history, whether or not we want to say, as some would say, it's secular or how it's sacred in the church, absolutely. But it does, in a way, begin to decouple it. That's why I end with Theodosius, because he's really a kind of crisis point, which I think many would take as, uh, in future, he's revered tremendously. Um, it does decouple it from the Roman Empire, even as now, now as the great defender of Nicaea, Theodosius really does enshrine this as a Roman thing, like Christianity, Rome. Augustine, in the City of God, you'll note, he begins to change from earlier books to later books of how he starts discussing things happening outside the empire and notes this. Um, so an interesting mention there, opening up then God's providential work in history. Yes, Father. Uh, thanks. Uh, maybe... If I could just kind of sketch a weird contrast. So in with Father Augustine speaking about the popular urban religions and then the imposition from without by an aristocratic um, suburban yeah. elite. Um, then if we were to sort of impose that on, on what you're talking about, Porphyry's standing up for the the urban local religion, you know, and, and then you have this sort of aristocratic imperial imposition Constantine, yes, but then also these sort of spiritual, um, you know, monastic elites who, you know, people like to draw out nowadays how it's not only like some sort of spiritual, some saintly person, but then, you know, they have their patron. Um, yes. So do you think that is kind of the picture where there's a sort of like uh, homegrown urban religion and Christianity is then imposed on it by 
an aristocracy? So I uh, know, no, well, first, this note, we jumped time. I, I, I jumped time. So Palfrey is no doubt a defender of the elite. So I think we go from elite to elite to elite to elite, if anything, uh, if, we, if we want to make it that way. I don't think he represents, I mean, he is very sophisticated and, and even where he goes to study under, uh, I think he's sensitive to it, but I don't think he represents sort of an urban sort of piety. He's making room for it. And it, it, as studies would suggest, that he likes the Chaldean oracles and other things so much shows that he's not so much an urban person, a, a local urban, but rather is the elite who always find these things more fascinating. That's the sort of commonplace Peter Brown, for example, uses at one point. But, um, I, but I also, I guess, would object to the ascetics as being so not urban. Uh, that I don't, I don't think that actually bears itself out. Uh, not only do the Desert Fathers seem sometimes, well, some of them explicitly are criminals and whatnot, but in other cities, um, you know, I, I guess Augustine, you could say, is that lower middle, upper middle class, lower upper class kind of person. But there are all of these unlearned uh, ascetics and monks, and we know of them in cities and what they're doing. And at many of these places, even the ones founded by patrons, uh, they are accepting people to come live with them sponsored by the great patron who can afford the property and the upkeep. Um, so I, I don't think that, that that plays itself out that way with asceticism. In fact, generally speaking, these seem to be more popular than not. Um, but I do think while the asceticism may represent something of more an urban popular movement, there is no doubt in a sense Theodosius, Constant, uh, Constantius, Constantine do represent something else. So then, in that place, it's sometimes Christian versus Christian. Yes? Uh, since my name was taken in vain, uh, one thing I should say is that although the Italian aristocracy had real estate in the countryside, they were also an urban nobility. Uh, and the anti-magnate legislation against them principally involves cutting down all their towers in the city uh, so, and getting them out of town. So uh, to see that as a urban versus rural conflict in Italy is completely anachronistic. I think that the Romans too, they have their exactly. the urban place, they have their, their country place. If you want to see a city that's still got all the towers, go to San Gimignano. They never managed to get the magnates <laughs> out of town. All right, uh, please join me in the discussion.